Welcome to another episode of the Ulster Rugby Roundup. We're very timely this week. We're recording just minutes after what is now the big talking point of Ulster's season climax, the Challenge Cup draw. We look into their chances of silverware in light of the double away trip they've been handed in the last 16 in the quarterfinal. And we'll also look back at the ending of their Pro 14 bid in Saturday's defeat to Leinster. So there's this weekend's trip to Dragons to preview as well, and Ireland's game against Scotland in the Six Nations. So plenty to get through, and joining me, Gareth Hanna, to do all that, our rugby reporting duo, Jonathan Bradley. Hello, Jonathan. Hi, how's it form? And Adam McKendry. Hello, Adam. Afternoon, gents. Good to see you. So without further ado, no time for uh, niceties this week, fellas. We have too much to get through, so we're just going to go straight in to the Challenge Cup draw. So Ulster, if anybody hasn't heard before listening to this, are away at Harlequins in the last 16, and then away again to Northampton or Dragons in the quarterfinal. So Jonathan, there were nine options open to them um, in the last 16 before the draw. Obviously, they could have been home or away, so overall... How do you rate what they've been handled here? I think it's quite possibly as tough as it could have been. I think especially the fact that you would say that they're even if they win, then they probably have to go to uh, Northampton. So two teams that handily enough played each other, um, played each other last weekend in Harlequins and Quinns, third and fifth in the in the Premiership. So not easy by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a good draw in a way because I think dropping into this competition, playing in it for a first time there could have been a tendency that people would look at it and think that Ulster should waltz it. Whereas now, if they do win, win, win a first piece of silver since 2006, it will have been done by beating some pretty decent teams, obviously. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Especially like the drawn Harlequins and you sort of thought, oh, well, that's not great. And then the way they were doing the draw, they were leaving the home and away a bit until the end. So you sort of left a stew on it and then it was 50-50, but you just knew, you were like, well, they're going to be away. It's not going to go in Ulster's favour. And Julie, it didn't. Uh, Donal asked very simply, Adam, is drawing Har- Harlequins one of the tougher possible outcomes we could have expected? It's funny. I, I had a tweet prepared for the away draw. And I, I already had it prepared as if Ulster were going to be away because I just thought to myself, you know, this is this is the luck they're going to get. Having drawn Harlequins, they are going to be away rather than at Kingspan Stadium. And of course it proved to be. And I also find it ironic that two unbeaten or two teams that haven't won a game all season in Ajon and Benetton have been drawn together. And one of them is guaranteed to reach the quarterfinals. So <laughs> Ulster have been given arguably the toughest draw and I would say probably the two best teams left in the competition have been drawn against each other in Ulster and Harlequins and the two worst teams in the competition have been drawn against each other so that's the way the balls came out of the pot and unfortunately that's how it's turned out for Ulster I I think this is the toughest draw they could have asked for Um, you can make an argument that Montpellier away might have been tough just because you know the star power that they still do possess they may not be having the best season in France but just the combination of travelling to France and, you know, Montpellier are always going to be a tough opposition. That possibly could have been a tough draw on its own right. But in terms of the quality of opposition, I think Harlequins, you look at how they're going in the Premiership, how things have turned around since Paul Gustard left them. I think they are the best team that Ulster could face in this last 16. And it just so happens they've been drawn against them. So, look, I, I completely agree with Johnny. I think whenever Ulster dropped into this competition, there was a real fear that there would just be absolutely no interest in it because they'd be facing some subpar teams. And I think if they had been drawn against the likes of Ajon 
um, then you would have looked at it as, well, that's just almost an automatic win. You're straight through to the quarterfinals without really being tested. But if you go up against Harlequins and they put out their full side, then you know you're going to deserve your spot in the quarterfinals if you win. So it's sort of a two-edged sword there. If you wanted an easy progression into the quarterfinals, then you haven't got it. But I think Ulster will really want to come to the end of the tournament and if they have won it, say, well, look, we, we didn't get this far by just swatting off some teams that we really should be beating. We put aside some teams that have been really impressive this season and Harlequins certainly apply there, as do Northampton in the semi or in the quarterfinals, if that is who they will face. Jonathan Harlequins, of course, very familiar opponents for Ulster. They've played each other four times in the last three, three four seasons. Ulster have won all four, but Adam mentions it there that uh, Harlequins have turned things around a little bit since then for anybody who doesn't really keep that close to an eye on, on things in the Premiership. Give us a little rundown on just what's going on and why this is a, a different task than it has been in the past for Ulster, even just last season when they played them. Yeah, well, Adam sort of touched on it there. Just like since uh, since Paul Guster left, um, obviously a highly rated coach, since he left, they've had a real sort of uptick in uh, in fortunes domestically. If you think about the stoop, obviously Ulster have won, uh, won twice there, as you say, in those two maidens. But this season, the only teams to win there are Exeter, Bristol, Racing 92, who could well be three of the best teams in Europe, if not the three best teams in Europe, going off sort of recent uh, recent European competition. So it's going to be a big ask. Like, good teams have gone there and lost this season. And, look, the elephant in the room is the fact that Ulster are going away to the third best team presently in the Premiership, and people are expecting them to win when they lost to the worst team in the Premiership already this season. Now, sizable enough mitigation from a game where you led by 10 late on three yellow cards and we're playing with like three of your four locks plus Marcel Gutsia but at the same time if you want to uh, a yardstick for the size of the challenge Gloucester are 12th and have been for most of the season and Harlequins are third I, th- I think it'll be interesting watching Harlequins over the next few weeks because their games in the three weeks between uh, now and playing Ulster in the last 16 are Exeter away Gloucester at home, ironically, and Bristol away. You know, there's two really tough games and arguably a banker at home. So it'll be really interesting to see how they fare against Exeter and Bristol just to see sort of where their form is at in those big games. I'm really impressed by Marcus Smith. I think last time Ulster played uh, Harlequins, he was still kind of in that formative phase where he'd just broken into the squad and he was really just finding his feet at the top level with Harlequins. But now he's had sort of a year, year and a half in that 10 jersey and he's looking like the, the real deal. Like he's on the verge of the England squad. He's become a real leader in that Harlequins team. And I think just his upturn has really coincided nicely with what Quinns are trying to do. Having Joe Marchant back has been great in the centre as well for them. So that if... Harlequins take this seriously and I, I'm not convinced they'll maybe put all their eggs in the Challenge Cup basket given how they're going in the Premiership and the fact that if they could qualify for the Champions Cup next season through the Premiership then the Challenge Cup takes on slightly less added significance for them uh, but if they took it seriously then Ulster in for a cracking game like this is the tie of the round hands down for me. Even if they do take it seriously and put out strong a team as they can, as you say there, Adam, they have those three fairly tough games coming up, which leads them right into the Challenge Cup 
last 16 weekend, which is the 2nd to the 4th of April. We don't know when exactly over that weekend Ulster's game will be, but Ulster obviously are basically condoned to us from now if they want until then. They have the two uh, final Pro 14 matches, which don't mean an awful lot. And then a week off, Jonathan, does that tilt things in Ulster's favour? Or I suppose you could look at it either way. You could look at it that they might be a little bit undercooked then by the, the time it rolls around. Yeah, I think Ulster have the sort of benefit of being able to mix and match, I suppose, their selections over the next two weeks to sh- ensure that everybody's well rested without anybody getting rusty. Then you've got a limited Six Nations contingent to filter back in as well and a week off for the Pro 14 final. So I, th- I think more than, I suppose, being battle-hardened or battle-ready or fresh or whatever, I think it's more the point that Adam makes of how seriously Quinns are going to take this because we know that this is a competition that they've had great success in in the past, but equally, and it's not even so much them looking to qualify for the Champions Cup next year, it's that top four place for the playoffs. I would say, I would guess that if you talk to most Harlequins fans, getting a place in the playoffs in England is more important than winning the Champions Cup to them. But then the other thing as well is the two weeks, so because the fixtures are back-to-back, like, you know, you may as well take a take a crack at the last sixteen because otherwise, if you rest everyone for that, lose, and then you've got no game the next week, then you've got two weeks off, which maybe isn't ideal. So it's re- it's really fascinatingly poised, and the interesting aspect of it as well is the possibility of having to go to Saints the week after because that would be two trips to tough places to go in England and back to back weeks, and uh, the like a huge game. For, it was a huge game for Harlequins against Saints there last weekend, and it came out. Uh, Came out on top, secured a bonus point through uh, former Ulsterman Brett Heron with the with the try, and Hayden Hyde will be joining them next season as well. Obviously, um, announced last week, so yeah. it's an interesting squad that they've got. It's an interesting game, I think. Yeah, tire their own, so exciting in that way. I suppose the downside of it is that without fans, or uh, sheer numbers of uh, Ulster fans in London, which we know is a is a big number from the previous games, won't get a nice handy uh, handy away trip. James Bradley wants to know if we can uh, give him our uh, journalist ticket for the match and he can act as a roving reporter for us. <laughs> Probably unlikely, James, unfortunately, but here we are. Well, I don't think we'll be there either, to be fair. I wouldn't no. Be true, yeah. I appreciate his enterprise for trying that. Like, uh, <laughs> all credit to you, James. But... Um, no dice this time. So, uh, Niall McDonald, I just wanted to know what we rate Ulster's chances are of getting past both Quinns and Northampton. And he makes the point that... Um, with Ulster's attack really clicking and showing how dangerous it can be with Balakoon and Stockdale flying, does that boost their chances a little bit? That's something we haven't mentioned and something we'll go into uh, detail on later uh, with Stockdale and Balakoon back in there. But because you mentioned that game that Ulster lost earlier in the uh, in the Champions Cup to English opposition, but they should be in, in a much better place when these ones come down, Adam. On paper, Ulster are the best team in the Challenge Cup. Well, to me, anyway, I, I think they're the best team left in the Challenge Cup. Harlequins are second best. So if you win this game, you knock out arguably your closest challengers. Northampton then are probably number three. So you're looking at if Ulster win these two games, they are knocking out the second and third seeds. Um, and then whenever you get to the quarter or the semifinals, arguably you're challenge is a lot easier because you're facing someone who isn't at the standard that you faced in the last 16 and the quarterfinals. So I I would still say Ulster are favourites. I still think Ulster are the strongest team in this competition, but certainly 
I think they still have to be on top of their game. That sounded very positive, Adam, indeed. I think uh, I think I agree. If they could just get the ball out to Robert Balakoon at this stage, they can beat anybody. I don't care who they're playing. Uh, so that game, as we say, will be somewhere on the weekend of April 2nd to 4th and the quarterfinals, if Ulster should reach them, will be on April the weekend of April 9th to the 11th, somewhere in there. So we'll, uh, we'll keep you updated if and when the exact date and time of those games are confirmed so back to the Pro 14 then on Saturday's game unfortunately finished Ulster 19 Leinster 38 there's no doubt about what was the main talking point afterwards Ben gets us on to it he asks is Dan McFarlane right to feel aggrieved regarding Andy Warwick's red card so obviously he was sent off and a lot of people have drawn comparisons with Jimmy O'Brien's yellow card for Leinster earlier in the game. Dan McFarland was one of those people. And here's a little taster of what he had to say about it after the game. Okay, I'm going to talk theoretical. Okay, so uh, a forearm that, that arrives in the sort of neck area with no force versus um, high tackle with no drop of height where a head hits somebody else in the face. Um, I would say there's not really many people that would argue that... Uh, the first one was dangerous, let alone more dangerous. So that that would, you know, that would, in a theoretical sense, I think that would be pretty obvious. How it uh, translates into the the decision making process, you know, which I I'm told is a very difficult process to go through, um, is a different matter. So Jonathan, what uh, what did you think of those two incidents? Was Dan right to to feel fairly aggrieved at the the way they both went? I don't know if he was genuinely aggrieved at the red card so much as genuinely aggrieved that the yellow card wasn't a red card. You can have sympathy for Andy Wark because if you're, I suppose, running on the charge with your forearm up and somebody's trying to tackle you, their tackle height should be lower. But the the tackle height's sort of in this in-between state at the minute where people are attempting to guard against offloads while also keeping their tackle low enough that they're not getting carded themselves. And that's sort of area in between, if you know what I mean. So like to hit somebody in the neck area with your your arm at that height sort of means that their head was level with your head, which it shouldn't be coming into a tackle. But at the same time, it's something that they're trying to stamp out that sort of leading with the forearm in, into, into a carry. So I, do, I don't think he was overly aggrieved. It's something that we'll have seen an awful lot of in years gone by that would not have been a red card. But the way that the laws are interpreted now there's always that chance. The main thing was that Jimmy O'Brien didn't get a red card earlier in the game for something that in what we just heard from Dan and the question that I asked him there was how much more dangerous is what Jimmy O'Brien did compared to what Andy Warwick did. And the answer is obvious because regardless of the intent in the action, I'm not talking about I'm not talking about intent to injure, but intent in the action to tackle that high and collide with somebody's basically in the face is more dangerous at that speed than what Andy Warwick did. There's no question about that. Even even if you look at Devin Toner's tackle on Michael Lowry, which is a straight arm to the head, you know, by the letter of the law, that is a high tackle. But what is more dangerous, an arm to the head in a tackle where a guy is running at full pace from deep in the field into traffic, as opposed to, you know, a guy who is taking the ball from effectively a standing start at the line. So it's, it's the way the laws are written, isn't it? It's, I'm not arguing that 
Andy Warks was not a red card. By the letter of the law, that is a red card. He has put his arm into the neck chin area of uh, of the Leinster player, and I I think all your all that's sort of coming out of this is what mitigation needs to be applied to the laws, if any. Is Andy Warks the same as Jimmy O'Brien's in terms of danger? Yeah because they're both hitting a guy up high and we've heard all about concussions. We've heard all about head injuries that are causing issues uh, beyond players playing careers. There has to be a a full crackdown policy on this. You cannot allow anything sort of from the head up to go unpunished because player safety is paramount right now. So So it sounds like O'Brien should have been sent off as well, red carded. Well, I thought that at the, at the time watching it live mm-hmm. that it was a red card. It was sort of similar to what we saw in the Ireland Wales game with Gary Ringrose, mm-hmm. where those kind of collisions to me are as dangerous as things in those games, or more dangerous perhaps, as things that happen in those games are resulted in red card. And it's not saying that the Irish player and the Ulster player shouldn't have been red carded. It's looking for consistency in the application of the laws, which is mitigating against the danger of high contact and regardless of what the intent is Johnny I suppose what we're maybe missing or are we missing do we know what the officials what the difference they made in the two incidents was the presence of mitigation they said that there was no mitigation in the incident with Warg. they said the mitigation in the Devon Toner and Mike Lowry incident was that Devon Toner's six foot seven and Mike Lowry's five foot eight, <laughs> which I don't really buy because at the end of the day, the duty of care is still with the tackler, regardless yeah. of your height or the height of the player you're tackling. Yeah. Does it, does it, sorry, just to make a very quick point by mitigation of Devin Toner being six foot seven and Michael Lowry being under six foot, you know, does, does that mean that we're players are required to be over six foot two or whatever in order for, them to be considered, you know, not at risk of being hit high. Like, what height do you have to be before uh, you get the special dispensation of uh, being allowed to tackle high? Yeah, exa- exactly. <laughs> like, if Devon Turner's six foot four, is it a yellow card? <laughs> yeah. And yeah, now, now, as you say, and if you're Michael Larry, I suppose you're thinking, well, look, I need, he needs protected more than anyone. We, Michael, for goodness sake, there should be extra protection on him. Yeah, I thought it was really good again. Um, but look, these are the debates that are going on, and they're especially going on at the minute because the Six Nations is going on. The Six Nations sparks, as we know, all sorts of trickle down effect, if you like, because of the amount of attention that's in it. And we've seen rakes of cards in the Pro 14 and rakes of cards in the Premiership over the last couple of weeks. But from an Ulster perspective, I think it's important to detach the individual incidents from the cards and look at the sheer number of cards in general. Like Ulster got three cards in that game. They've only lost four games all season. They got three cards against Leinster. They got three cards against Gloucester. They got a yellow card in the away game against Leinster. That's seven cards across the four games that they've lost. If you want to extrapolate that out and look at games in which they dropped bonus points, away to Ospreys, home to Monster, away to Connacht, away to Glasgow, that's another four games where they've dropped points. 
they got a card in all of those games. Like the overwhelming common denominator for a team that is bottom of the fair play league in the Pro 14 is that whenever they've dropped points, which hasn't been often, they've mm-hmm. spent a period of that game at least with at least 14 men. So if you're looking for ways to improve, of ways that you can close that gap in terms of points, when you're looking at and saying, oh, we've only lost two games in the league all season. But even if they had have won that game, they were still really relying on help from elsewhere because of the lack of bonus points. That, to me, is a glaring, relatively easy fix. And I say relatively easy in the sense that, to me, ill-discipline should be something that's easier to compensate for than a lack of talent, which also don't have, or a lack of application, which also don't have, if you follow me. Like, if the team just couldn't scrum for toffee, then that would be a hard thing to overcome with the yeah. present personnel. But professional rugby players, theoretically, it should be easier to coach them mm-hmm. up to eradicate a number of these cards. Yeah. Yeah. No, as you say, there is a level of com- bizarre comfort in that, in a way, in that it should be something that's easy fixed to that make a big dent in that the, that gap to Leinster that still exists. So, I'll tell you someone who doesn't need to improve whatsoever, and that's Robert Balakoon, because he's already fantastic, folks. Adam, just that try was phenomenal. Just shows what we've missed out on. But which try? Yeah, which, which try? Yeah, which try you talking about? The, the, the one that was dropped off is better. Like the one that was dropped yeah. off was one of those where you were like, if anybody had scored it and the referee disallowed it for that, you'd be like, oh, really? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like... Where, regardless of your feeling of whether it was blocking or not. And I think we're in dicey territory if like. People can just uh, tackle a dummy runner and say they were blocked off. I'm not sure about that. I but mean, it's 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 very clear Ruddock was caught hook, line, and sinker by the dummy run. Like the, the dummy the, runners essentially become pointless if you're going to give it as blocking if the tackler tackles the dummy runner and then you give it as block off. But that's real. Yeah. Regardless of what you think about that, that's one of those tries. There's got to be some sort of like spirit of the game rule where you just uh, <laughs> you just let that slide because. It's one of, like that's what people want to see, and I mean, you know, sl- slightly tongue in cheek about it being alive, regardless of any infringement. But like that was the most exciting thing in the game. Yeah, was, like that. Was, that. I, I think. Like imagine if that, that try had stood. What what would that put a, put the score to? It would have been like twenty four nineteen or something like that. Like uh, Ulster would have been right back in it at that point. And of course, whenever it's chalked off, that's the moment you just think, well, Ulster's luck just isn't in tonight. Mm. Um, to bring it back to Balakun himself, uh, he's been brilliant in the two games that he's been back. And I think whenever he got that hamstring injury, you always knew that it was going to be a tough one to come back from because the position he plays in where he relies so much on pace, um, where he is someone who is very good at making quick turns. He's very good at being agile whenever he steps off his, uh, his feet. Um, you were always just a little bit worried about whenever he came back, how long you would have to take to ease him back in. And then whenever he got the ankle injury on top of that, you know, there, there's another key component of a, of a PSC winger who relies on agility and evasiveness. But for him to come back in, firstly, um, last week against the Ospreys and look like he hadn't missed a trick at all. Like in the set, I was surprised how much he was involved, not only in the entire second half against the Ospreys, but in the first sort of five minutes. I think he got his hands on the ball three or four times and he was right into the thick of the action, which I suppose is what you want to kind of ease any concerns that you have over an injury. Um 
but against Leicester, I thought he was phenomenal. Like I, I thought any time he got the ball in hand, he was beating defenders. There was one where he actually, I think he went over the top of Dave Carney, you know, which isn't something that you usually see from Rob Balakun. It's usually him going around guys, but he was putting a bit of physical power in there as well. And then the finish for the try, the ad, the try that was actually given was superb down in the corner. Great work from uh, firstly Treadwell. I think Kieran Treadwell's offload in the build-up to that try has been overlooked because of McCluskey's one-handed out the back. But Treadwell throws a brilliant offload in the build-up as well. McCluskey with the one-handed offload. Andrew throws a perfect pass and Balakin with a great finish in the corner. I, I can't speak highly enough of that step for the try that wasn't given. You know, he, he makes the line break. And then, I th- is it Max O'Reilly he leaves in the dust? Or is it Carney again? I, whoever it is, he just, like, they don't stand a chance. He's one step and he's gone. He doesn't need to do anything particularly fancy. It's just a step and that pure pace gets him through. Whenever you look at how Ulster's back three have done this year, between the combination of uh, Larry, Faddis, McElroy, Gilroy, uh, Little, Stockdale... You sort of wondered, you know, where does Balakun factor back in? And in 120 minutes over two weeks, he's left himself right back up into the top two wingers, if not the top one. Like that's that's how good he was over the over the last two games, in my opinion. Johnny, it's over the course of his career. Like if you look at his last 18 starts, now these are spread over a long period of time. But in 18, his last 18 starts, he scored 13 tries. Yeah, he's he's just got a great knack for the try line. Like the pace to go with, um, just the ability to finish as well is like everyone talks about Aaron Sexton and how he has an eye for the try line for the A's, and they're saying you know well he's he's got to be called up to the senior team because he just knows how to finish tries. Rob Balakin's got a fantastic strike rate for Ulster already. Like. And I'm not saying I'm not saying don't call up Aaron Sexton because you've got Rob Balakun, but I'm just saying you know don't overlook how good Rob Balakun is at scoring tries. Johnny, given what he's done the last two games, the way he's performed in the last two games, maybe said a little bit tongue in cheek, but have Ireland called up the wrong Ulster winger? <laughs> I think if you sort of hark back to the autumn and you look at what the way Ireland treated Eric O'Sullivan, the caution to throw Eric O'Sullivan in, even though they needed a loose head, because he hadn't been in the camp. I think you can see the value that they place on knowing the system. And I think if, you know, you wouldn't be saying, is it Jacob or Rob, if Jacob had been fit from the start, because he would have been in the squad anyway. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Like it's, it's not like it's one or the other, and I don't think it will be one or the other, because Rob Balakun will play for Ireland sooner rather than later. We saw that, far, you know, Farrell having him as a one of the development players that he had in an earlier panel, how highly he rates him. And he's done nothing but perform when he's actually been able to play since then. So I'd say he's right, right on the cusp. And if not for injury, probably would have got that, almost certainly would have got that cap already, probably last autumn. So like it'll come from, it's a pity that it really is a pity that it looks like there won't be a summer tour because... I think you would have seen him go on that in the same way that Stockdale went in 2017. And then, you know, once he gets in there, he could become a real, a real fixture. I think like of all Ulster's, of all Ulster's promising young players, I think he's the most, 
one, I think he's the next to get cut, but I think he's the most likely to become Ulster's next Ireland starter. Mm-hmm. I, I find that ironic because he was never one of the really hyped up prospects. He wasn't even playing rugby whenever everybody else was a prospect. <laughs> <laughs> Fair point. But yeah, like you think about guys who have come through the Ulster system have been hyped as potential stars. Balakun was never one that was like overly high on anybody's list of guys that you thought were going to really make it. But like the growth that he has had in such a short space of time is remarkable. And I think you really are seeing, you know, the sevens pathway becoming a lot more viable for players making the step up into the 15s game because you're looking at Balakun, uh, is the Chukwu coming through with Ulster now? I'm pretty sure Keenan Daly both played sevens now in the uh, now in the Ulster, or in the Ireland setup. Sorry, so well, yeah, Connors as well, yeah. So the impact that Balakun has had in such a short space of time with Ulster is remarkable to, and it's a testament to his hard work, his willingness to grow, and I think just his overall ability and. You know, I, I just love how laid back he is. They call him the cap because he's always horizontal in terms of his mindset. But um, like the, the guy is, he's genuinely got such a high ceiling here. Mm. And I don't want to talk him up too much because, you know, you, you never want to put unrealistic expectations on anybody. But I, like, I think the next thing has to be that first Ireland cap. I've been telling you this for years, guys. I don't know why you're you're so surprised. I've been telling you since we first saw him, since we first set eyes on Robert Balakun, I said, that boy will play for Ireland. I do say that for every single player that makes their Ulster debut, but sooner or later you get one right, and then I can tell you that I'm right. Um, so You'd be a great, you'd be a great scout, Darth. You should, you should go into <laughs> underage rugby scouting. You'd be, t- you'd be ticking them all off as future Ireland internationals. <laughs> the Ulster Academy would be overflowing with like 16-year-olds <laughs> who are all Ireland internationals based on the viewing of Gareth Hanna. <laughs> Wait, I'm, I'm wasted here. So <laughs> Ulster's back line in general then, obviously Lowry and Stockdale were the other two members of it over the weekend. Obviously that probably hasn't played very often together, that back three, has it, Johnny? Just with injuries and in one thing or another? I'm pretty sure I looked at it and I'm thinking it's never played, it had never played yeah. together that back three, I think. Right. So, oh, I'll find out here. I'll find out. So, how did you how did you rate that as uh, that potential Will Addison notwithstanding? Uh, how did you rate that as Ulster's first choice? Yeah, well, see, that's the thing, isn't it? Because Will Addison is there, sort of as this presence in the background. But who would like who do you drop out of that back three? Unless you're going to move Laurie to ten. I thought, I thought the way that Ulster kept the ball moving at pace and the way that they manipulated space when Leinster were playing with 14 and briefly 13 men through bringing Laurie into the game more, using him at first receiver and second receiver during that period, I thought was brilliant. It was really, really exciting to watch, sort of culminating in that Robert Balakun try. Like, um, I, For me, I think that's probably the unit that you're banking on moving forward. If, you know, Will Addison comes back in and gets into that mix before the end of the season, then you're looking at it as, as a bonus. But it's a good position for Dan McFarlane to be in because we talked about this a few weeks ago with Craig Gilroy. You know, you've got those three, which is for the flack that I suppose the Ulster Academy has taken over the last, say, maybe not the last 10 years, but 
over different times the last 10 years mm. you've got that as a homegrown back three then you've got Gilroy Little Sexton McElroy uh, Moxham all sort of pushing that group that's a great position to be in like if you had that level of competition throughout the pitch you'd be in a very very good place yeah absolutely Adam's back Adam has it ever played together they have not They've never played yeah. together. Well, fingers crossed they'll get a little run together then uh, whenever Stockdale comes back from the Six Nations into the Challenge Cup campaign. Fingers crossed there's three or four matches for them to play over that and not just one. So where things didn't maybe go quite as well for Ulster then on Saturday was up front in the pack. There's quite a few questions here regarding the pack. The first one is from Archie Moore, which links to Leinster's as opposed to Ulster's, but he just asked when Leinster were picking and going close to the line, in particular in the lead-up to the Michael Bent try, it looked like they were sending the man in front of the ball carrier to take out defenders. In this example, it was Van der Fleer. Is this legal? And, and I would add, did, were they doing that? Um, I would have to look back at this specific example. It wouldn't be legal, but a thing that Leinster do very well, something that we talked about in the build-up, something that we saw in the previous game when between Ulster and Leinster, when they're in that sort of between five metres and the try line, there's an almost inevitability about the way that they play now with those pick and goes. Um, sort of using that almost, it's almost like an arrowhead and the ball carriers at the tip and then they've got the two guys ready to latch on just either side and then they sort of <laughs> barrel past mm. on the on the clear out. So Theoretically, and as I said, I would need to look at the exact example that he's talking about, but um, theoretically, I think it is possible that the guys are just very close on the latch and then through the clear out and the ball carrier is leading initially. Yeah. Because that's well, something that Nancy do brilliantly and something that extra do brilliantly as well. Like, because, you know, Dan McFarlane was asked in the aftermath about, you know, similar things to what he's often asked, you know, what makes Leinster so good? And what he said was, you know, it's not, it's not the system. It's not some kind of magic. It's just the execution of what they do and the execution of what they do when they're five to 10 meters from the try line is up there with the very, very, very best at the minute. Mm-hmm. I, I have looked at the specific examples. They're not illegal in what they're doing or certainly from my viewing, they're not. It's, it's effectively exactly as what Johnny said. They are right on the line, but whenever the ball carrier makes the carry, the tackle's made, the two guys on the uh, who are flanking the ball carrier then sweep through and take out the supporting players who are about to join the rock. So um, it's, it's right on the edge of the law, but they are on the right side of it. And that's the thing, Leinster's execution of those things is just you know, spot on every single time. Yeah, they're just very good at, at what to do. So on Ulster's pack, a couple of questions. Jim Frederick, James Frederick, sorry, asks, why have Ulster over the years seemed to not have as big a pack as Leinster? And Big Jim adds that he thinks Ulster do have a decent pack, but how do they stop getting bullied by Leinster? Obviously, everything's still being measured by that uh, Leinster barometer. How did it lose the gap amongst the forwards, John? Personnel. You know, Ulster's personnel in the forward pack, well, I'd say in the obvious, isn't as good as Leinster's. Mm. Part of that, and I say this, you know, thinking that Nick Timoney and Jordy Murphy, as examples, have been Ulster's best players over the last month, but some of Ulster's pack is guys that were deemed surplus at Leinster. So that's 
going to be a part of it. Mm. I think that when you're talking about how Leinster can produce more good players, is it's not that they're producing more good forwards, it's they're producing more good players. And part of that is because of everything that we always talk about, the school system, excess pop- population, the geographical trends of people towards Dublin throughout um, you know, urbanization essentially means there's more people flocking towards Dublin, which means there's more people flocking into Dublin schools. So by the numbers, Leinster should always be producing more forwards. So just to move it on a little bit, then time's ticking on. So the rest of James' question asked, are there any young prospects coming through that could strengthen the pack, especially he's thinking about uh, promising front rowers in the academy outside of Tom Stewart? The prospects coming through, Tom Stewart is definitely the one. We we know about Dave McCann as well. Um, Reuben Crothers is supposed to be a very good uh, ball-playing flanker as well. Um, and Cormac is a chukwu. I've liked the look of Harry Sheridan in some of the A games. Um, I know that they're quite uh, quite fond of him and sort of the potential that he has. But I think the ones that you want to see really making the breakthrough have already sort of started to make their breakthrough mm. at the moment with uh, Callum Reid, uh, Izzichukwu, McCann, and then you'll have Stuart definitely making a breakthrough at some point. But the bottom line is you know, there have been no schools games for a year and a half now. Yeah. It's not roughly then. So we can't really judge who that next wave of players coming through are because we haven't seen them. Mm-hmm. There's not even club games that we can go down and look at, you know, under 18s playing for them because uh, how, how are we meant to judge who these next players are if they're not actually playing? And this is probably an issue that's going to arise out of the COVID 19 pandemic, which is there are going to be a raft of players probably for the next three or four years that have lost a very important full year of development. Now, that's going to be widespread. This isn't just going to be an Ulster issue. It's not like Ulster going to be losing a year on everybody else. It's everyone's going to be losing a year. But you're probably going to see for a little bit, probably over the next year, two years, where teams are going to be a little bit more hesitant with bringing guys through just because uh, of that lack of development that they have lost over a full year and that's it's just going to be something that teams will have to ride through yeah that's certainly a problem going forward for teams even selection wise i'm sure for ulster as i think we talked about a few weeks ago didn't we just in picking who they're who they're bringing to their the academy next haven't not having seen these guys playing in a year and over at this stage so we'll move on then for now to the games this weekend Ulster are in Wales on Saturday at 7.35 where they're taking on Dragons in a game that everybody cares an awful lot about and is very excited about. Donal asked, and I should say, because I forgot to say last week, I think it was because we didn't have time and I didn't actually ask his question last week, so apologies for that, Donal, but we should say a very belated happy 30th birthday to the weekly Donal. Um, He turned 32 weekends ago, so happy birthday to you. His question is, should Dan McFarland use the last Pro 14 rounds to blood younger players, continue deepening his squad, particularly in the pack, as we've, we've just been talking about there? So I think Dan's probably already said that he's going to do that, hasn't he? So we can probably move that on in terms of who. Well, I suppose one, Dan doesn't like the term 
as I found out from asking you this question, Dad doesn't particularly like the term blooding youngsters, but aside from that, um, <laughs> what do you say? It, more. His response to a similar question was that they already have, you know, that's what they've been doing. You know, we've seen is it true play in these last couple of big games? Um, I, I think, yes, you will see a level of rotation. I think you'll see a couple of guys that we haven't seen for a couple of weeks, but I don't necessarily know if you're going to see like, you know, sub-academy guys make their debut type of thing. Um, I, I would say that Callum Reid will come in because Marty Moore's not going to play loose head again, you know? Um, mm-hmm. He could try. Well, he, he gave it a, de- he, he he, a decent... He did a decent job. Decent, decent <laughs> fist of it and was... Uh, very much without ego when asked about the challenges of it. I was just like, well, what did you expect me to do? Not try sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, fair play to Marty for uh, his response to my fairly stupid question. Um, I'd love to see David McCann. I think we will see David McCann over the next couple of weeks. But, yeah, like, I, I don't think we're going to, you know, we're not going to see 10 debuts or anything like that because most of these guys that are anyway, anywhere near ready, we've already seen. Mm. Like, Tom Stewart is the guy that kept, keeps getting mentioned. Was mentioned even in one of those listener questions that keeps getting mentioned as the next cab off the rank and probably just injuries of uh, injuries this season and meant that we haven't seen him yet. But when you're talking about a team that's already given debuts to you know players like Nathan Doke, who this time last year was still in school, like there's not an abundance of young talent ready to go that we haven't already seen. Yeah. So how many of these guys do you think, like those guys that you've mentioned there, the likes of Reed? Um, he's a cheap guy, Doke, uh, Sexton, even maybe some of those uh, the the wingers. Um, how many of those guys do you play at once over these next two games? Is there a balance? You've got to be, yeah. You've you've got to be careful. Like you can't just make wholesale changes and throw a completely young side out there. I'm a big advocate for if you put a young player in, you've got to have some kind of experience around them so that they can teach them through or coach them through the game and you know you're not just leaving them out there to flounder as a group of young guys if things start to go wrong you need to have that experienced head in there so I don't think this is a case of simply you know throwing a load of young guys in and saying now's your chance go and impress you've got to be smart with them so I think it's probably more about looking at guys who have played a lot of minutes so far and working out where to bring guys in in uh in lieu of them so for example like alan o'connor's played a lot of minutes recently so there's definitely a chance to give us a his full debut uh and instead of him give o'connor a week off um i, th- I think you're probably looking at putting dave mccann in there because uh, nick timoney's played a lot of minutes and he had another good game against leinster so you, you know what you're getting with him but uh, it's time to give him a week off. Um, so, yeah, I, I think you, you'll probably see a handful of changes. I think there will be – you're not going to get more or less the same team that went out against Leinster, but you're not going to get a completely changed side that went out against Leinster. You'll maybe get, I would reckon, six or seven changes, and you'll probably see a priority on youth rather than just simply rotation. But the thing is, you know, I couldn't care less about the result in this game. If they win, that's good. It keeps that momentum going. But for the last two games, you've got to start looking at guys because these games don't matter 
and as Dan said, they don't matter externally. Like they, yeah. Ulster are guaranteed second. They're guaranteed their spot in Europe next season. They can't reach the Pro 14 final. So now is a chance to start preparing for the Rainbow Cup uh, and more importantly, moving into next season and looking at who you're going to use a bit more. I've also just realized some... also treat the Rainbow Cup like that, then, then I would. Well, I've, I've got, I've got <laughs> rather than prepare Rainbow. for the Rainbow Cup, I'd be using the Rainbow Cup as purely for this. Oh, well, so, yeah. so, so would I. But the thing is, I believe that Ulster are going to treat it seriously and they're going to go go for silverware. But um, yeah, they'll have already won the Challenge Cup, though. So that might change, you know, the, the silverware's off their monkeys off their back. So he said very confidently. So, I've also just realized something. Ulster could potentially have three trips to Rodney Parade this season because of Cardiff Blues playing there, uh, going to the Dragons, and then they could potentially play Dragons in the quarterfinal of the Challenge Cup. And that is just one heck of a way to spend a season that has already been ruined by the COVID-19 pandemic. <laughs> well, I think Dragons haven't won there since like the middle of October or something. So like, it's not bad from a competitive perspective. True, true. It just means there's very little chance of them actually making it to the quarterfinal either, though. What else do we have to talk about? We have Ireland to talk about, of course. How could we forget? On Sunday afternoon, Ireland are away to Scotland. Three o'clock, that game starts in the fourth round of the Six Nations. Of course, Jacob Stockdale was confirmed on Monday, uh, as we all suspected, is called back into the squad. Jonathan, what do you expect? Where do you expect him to be come the team announcement on Friday? On the wing, at fullback, on the bench? I'd like to think we wouldn't see him at fullback. I think Hugo Keenan's really sort of made that position his own. Yeah. Is that is that the end of this whole Stockdale experiment now? I, I think that it should be because you don't need him to play fullback because you yeah. find a fullback. The issue was in the absence of Rob Carney, who was going to play fullback? And they thought about Stockdale, they thought about Larmer. Because it's worth remembering that Hugo Keenan was nowhere mm. like this time last year in terms of Ireland selection. Like he was not somebody that was on the radar. Or sorry, not somebody that was on the public's radar anyway. I don't know. I don't know if you throw him straight back in or you have him on the bench. I don't think it I don't think either has any bearing on what Andy Farrell thinks about Jacob Stockdale long term. Yeah. The thing is he he can he can cover I know he hasn't played 13 in a while, but in in a desperate situation he could play 13. So he does have that versatility to put him on the bench mm-hmm. and use him from there. So and the the thing is, I don't think you you need to put him straight back in. Like we know that Farrell quite likes James Lowe. Um, Larmers look decent, uh, and Keenan's practically a lock at fullback now. So um, I think there is the chance to ease him back in. But if if he wants to maybe try something different, like personally, I haven't been overly enamoured by James Lowe and Green, and maybe it's one of those ones where you want to drop him to the bench to maybe give him a kick up the backside and. Uh, try and get him back into form a bit but equally I could see them easing Jacob back in because you've got to remember that um, a half against the Ospreys and a full game against Leinster isn't ideal preparation to go straight back into the to the fast paced madness that is the Six Nations so uh, it may be one where he wants to just try and bring him back in slowly mm-hmm. and aside from that then just as normal for the Ulster players? Well, Kelleher against Kelleher v. Herring is going to be an interesting one. There's an awful lot of people pressing the claim for Kelleher to start. Um, not so many people <laughs> pressing the case for Herring to start. 
despite Herring playing very solidly whenever he has played mm-hmm. and Kelleher doing some eye-catching things very well and some eye-catching things not so well. Mm-hmm. Losing a line-out and then scoring a try off that lost line-out. <laughs> yeah. I suppose to contradict what I'll say about the back line is I, w- I think you can... I think I'd want to see Herring start. Sorry, I know I'd want to see Herring start irrespective of whether he's going to be the hooker for France or not. When it comes to the back line, certainly in terms of the outside backs and you're talking about Jacob, I think I would want to see Keenan, Larmer and Jacob in the back three with Ringrose and Henshaw in the centre because for me, that's your outside back line mm. for France in mm. two years. Yeah. So... I'd want to see that as much as possible, but equally I would understand to Adam's point if Farrell decides that 120 minutes in the Pro 14 after t- more than two months is not ideal preparation for the Six Nations and throws him in off the bench, then I could understand the logic of that as well. Well, we, ha- we have precedent already of Furlong and Henderson both being named on the bench against Wales having been out for so long. So I think if, if he sticks to that, then... If Stockdale play, plays, it has to be off the bench. But I, I would agree. Like I, I think that outside back uh, combo is what you're looking at for France. Obviously, after what we said earlier, we have to throw Robert Balakoon into the mix. But yeah, I think if you're thinking ahead, and especially the fact that you've only given Earls a one-year deal uh, on a central contract, you're probably looking at these are the guys that you're wanting to build around or you're trying to get some sort of chemistry in uh, ahead of the World Cup. Okay, well, that will have to do us for this week because time is up. Not much chat about Ireland. Apologies if that's what you were here for. But at the same time, I'm sure the vast majority of you were here on the Ulster Rugby Roundup for chat about Ulster. So hopefully you won't fall out with us for that. So we will be back next week and we'll take a look back at both of those games and then ahead to Ireland's final Six Nations game against England and Ulster's final Pro 14 game uh, against Zebra. Until then, from Adam McKendry, thank you, Adam. Cheers, guys. From John and Bradley, thank you, John. Thank you, cheers. And from myself, Gareth Thanks for listening.